This is Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, welcoming you to another classical Chicago podcast from Sadie. The sprightly snippet you just heard was the beginning of the scherzo, fifth movement, of Beethoven's string quartet in C-sharp minor, opus 131, from a new recording by the Dover Quartet. It's volume three of their complete Beethoven string quartet cycle, and those of you who've listened before know whenever we have a new album out on CD Records, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast. And I'm so pleased that my guest on this podcast is Joel Link, the first violinist of the Dover Quartet. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm good, thanks. The Dover Quartet is, according to BBC Music Magazine, one of the best of today's truly wonderful younger quartets. And that was written as part of an article running down the top string quartet ensembles of the last hundred years. Grammy nominated, the Dover Quartet has had a practically meteoric trajectory, according to Strings Magazine, and is one of the most in-demand chamber ensembles in the world. They came to everyone's notice at the 2013 Banff International String Quartet competition with their stunning sweep of all the prizes. They have also won grand and first prizes at the Fischoff Chamber Music Competition, Wigmore Hall International String Quartet Competition, and other prestigious honors include Avery Fisher Career Grant, Chamber Music America's Cleveland Quartet Award, and Lincoln Center's Hunt Family Award. So in other words, the Dover Quartet is a pretty big deal. I'm pleased that this is their fifth album for Sadie Records, and they actually made their recording debut on CD with an album of Mozart in tribute to their mentors, the Guarneri Quartet at the Curtis Institute. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Joel, why don't you give the quick history of the Dover Quartet and all your associations? Oh, sure. We formed in school. We really enjoyed playing together and felt like there was a really great chemistry and we had a lot of kind words extended from a lot of our mentors and particularly Shmuel Ashkenazi, said, hey, if you guys want to get married, I think you could do this pretty well. And uh, for us, that was really exciting. So that got us into talking about life seriously as a group and what that could and might mean. And we never looked back. We committed very early on and, and have enjoyed a really wonderful life as a group. I should note that Shmuel Ashkenazi is the first violinist of the Vermeer Quartet, which made its last few recordings actually for Sadie Records. Yeah, he's a huge influence in our lives and in obviously many musicians' lives. So our name Dover actually comes from a piece that was written by Samuel Barber while he was a student at the Curtis Institute, which of course for us is very meaningful. And the piece was called Dover Beach. It is a piece for string quartet and baritone based on a poem by Matthew Arnold. When he wrote it, he would sing it with the Curtis Quartet. For us, the quartet tradition in Philadelphia has always been very special, of course, with the Guarneri Quartet, who are our mentors. Most of them really poured a lot of time into us as a group. And of course, we grew up idolizing their recordings and idolizing them as people and still do. For our first album on CD, we got to do this wonderful tribute album and record a Mozart viola quintet with the famed late Michael Tree, which was an incredible experience. 
I should note that the Dover Quartet has residencies at the Curtis Institute as well as the Kennedy Center and, of course, Northwestern University, which is why they're recording on CD Records because of their connection to Chicago, and that the members of the quartet are Joel Link, my guest, first violin, Brian Lee, violin, Milena pajaro Vandestadt viola, and Camden Shaw, cello. If you want to hear a little bit more about the quartet's history, especially with the Beethoven quartets in performance, I would point you to an earlier Classical Chicago podcast, number 39 with Milena, which comes from August 2020. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts on Spotify or through the Sadie website. This, by the way, is our Classical Chicago podcast, number 56. So why don't we get right into the repertoire, Joel, and ask the question that I think People always ask, what makes the Beethoven late quartet so special and even unique in the string quartet canon? Mm, That's a big question. (laughs) I'm not sure that I even know how to really answer that in a very full way. I feel like what I can say is you can't really say that many musical pieces were written by someone who was completely deaf. So I think that sets them apart in terms of how one appreciates the music itself. It's always an interesting question to ask if it's actually something that helped him achieve what he was able to achieve or not. My feeling is that it probably was, and I feel like he was listening on such a different scale by this point. And for me, what makes the late quartets really special is it's beyond really what a string quartet can actually do. (laughs) And the techniques of spreading melodies around between so many voices require a lot of activity from the listener. While everyone respects them deeply, some people don't love them as much as some of Mm -hmm. the other ones. But for musicians, they're considered the greatest things ever written in the repertoire. So for me, it's just a mix of so many different things. And obviously, the scale is so impressive. With most of the late quartets, they're absolutely huge mammoth pieces. Most of them are around 40 minutes or a little longer. So I think they take a lot from the performer. They take a lot from the listener. For me, it's almost like you have to zoom out of the music and uh, appreciate things on such a larger scale, which is really special. Well, you've touched on something that the note writer for actually all three volumes of your Beethoven cycle, Nancy November, Beethoven scholar based in New Zealand, mentions in the very first paragraph of her note to this album, talking about an early review of the first of the late quartets, the Opus 127, she points out that The debate that went on about these pieces, with some extolling Beethoven as a, quote, great innovator, while others considering these the work of a deaf madman. (laughs) (laughs) How much of a departure are these quartets from those that came before, both Beethoven's, I guess, and those of other composers? In terms of structure, they're pretty far from what came before. In terms of harmonically what he's doing, I don't think it's so far, actually, and I think that's something I, I feel like maybe some people might disagree with. I think he is, of course, pushing the boundaries, and there's no question about that. But when we look at what he's actually written, it all makes 100% sense with the rules that came before. He wasn't defying, in my opinion, a lot of those classical rules in harmony and and progression and, and such. What he's doing is changing how we're listening to it and expanding that box. So it's really the extended forms that would have made these pieces perhaps uncomfortable for audiences in the mid-1820s when they first performed? I think so. I think it's also a mix of him changing so many aspects that people had come to understand and almost like he spreads the voicing and does all these things and gives everyone such different functions, but everything is working in such a beautiful harmony. But I feel like people weren't used to listening in that way. In some ways, we're still not. It's really taking four voices to a point of separation from each other, but also incredible unity that hadn't been experienced before. Yeah, I referenced audiences from when they were first written and performed, but in fact, 
fair to say that some modern audiences and maybe even some modern performers still struggle with these quartets. What is it like to play them as a set? Ooh, well, we've never really played all the lates together. We have played one or two together on a program, and I feel, for me, and we'll wind up delving into each piece, I suppose, a bit. Each one of them, in such different ways, there's a tremendous story from start to finish, some more than others, and I'd say maybe 131 being the most classically obvious Mm -hmm. of it. It almost feels like an entire life story in a piece. So it's very difficult to put multiples of them on a program. I stand by what I was saying before. It it requires a lot from the listener. My feeling is each one of those experiences is so full and rich and self-reflective and explorational that it can be a lot to have multiples of them. But to get to play the Beethoven cycle itself, which we've done several times, is both a really daunting and extremely fulfilling experience. There's something about his music. You get to explore the gamut of human emotion in most of his stuff, of course, as his writing progressed, the depth became deeper and just constantly ever-expanding. It would have been amazing if he'd lived even a little longer. I would have loved to have seen Mm. what he would have written after this. It would have been really mind-blowing, but we're so fortunate to have what we do have. So when you actually perform the cycle, I take it you take the approach within each concert of one from each quote-unquote period, early, middle, and late? We generally have We've done a couple different kinds of programming, and of course, we've done the Slee Cycle in Buffalo. Someone willed a lot of money for the perpetuity of Beethoven Cycle being performed every year in Buffalo, and there is an order that is prescribed for it to happen. So it's interesting. I believe it opens with Opus 127, Mm. and I'm pretty sure it ends with Opus 59, number two. It's a pre-done list and set of them. So we've done two where we've chosen our own programs, and one like that. And it's been interesting. It's more than not wanting to put two lates on a concert. It's often been timing and key related and trying to find interesting ways to tie the pieces together. It's really interesting for anyone coming to a concert to get the chance to hear a wider variety of what Beethoven did. Not to say that the lates don't have a lot of variety because they are incredibly varied, but it's really nice to be able to see and hear the growth throughout a program, which I often found really special. Now, of course, this is one way that the recording experience is different, of course, because you did record the lates together in all the quartets throughout your cycle, which is in three volumes, as typical, the early or Opus 18 quartets, the middle quartets, and the late quartets. And they are presented entirely in sequence, one, two, three, all the way through 16. So that gives, I guess, a different listening experience if you choose to listen straight through the CDs or on Spotify straight through the the playlist. Um, Now, because these quartets are so massive, I think what we'll want to do here is key on one movement from each. But before we start that process with the first of them, the Opus 127 in E-flat major, is there anything you'd like to say about the piece as a whole, how it's structured, etc.? Sure. In terms of the structure, it's a bit more classical in its structure by comparison to some of the ones that are coming that are six and seven movements long. This is a standard four movement piece, but it's not a standard piece. (laughs) He's exploring huge scale. And in certain ways, the form is irregular. For example, the first movement doesn't follow a typical Sonata Allegro form. We hear things and everything is reminiscent, but I feel like by this point, you can probably really start to see it in the middle quartets, especially in 59-1. He doesn't even have a repeat. And when you feel like the repeat has come, it's actually written in a way where he goes to a different key area immediately. He does something similar in the movement. It's a little bit shorter, of course, than the first movement of 59-1. He's already departing from the standard and through composing a lot more in this piece. 
than he had been to that point, which is really exciting. The second movement for me is a particular favorite. I adore that movement. It's one of the great movements that he wrote. It is an extended theme and variations, and it's almost hard to even tell that it's a theme and variations because, again, the variations are so long and there's so much to be said in each one. The scherzo is incredible. It's probably one of the most unique scherzos he ever wrote. It's also massive. And the middle section, the presto that comes in, is one of my all-time favorite sections of anything Beethoven. The way it comes, it's like a wave of terror that just absolutely consumes you as a player and as a listener. And then the scherzo comes back, and it's this incredibly light and fiendishly difficult and elegant movement. And the last movement for me, it feels like such a warm expression of the key of E flat major and has such a lovely rustic quality that I feel he doesn't generally go for it in the late quartets by comparison to the Razumovskis, for example, but he really nails it here. And it ends with this fantasy world color, I feel. It's just such a unique piece. In some ways, it, it's always intrigued me as a piece more than many of the other ones that are super celebrated, which I also love, but this one has a really special place for me in my heart. I appreciate that overview. In her notes to the booklet, Nancy November keys on the long variations movement, the second. Now, there are such movements in other of these quartets, opus 131 and 132, the ones numbered 14 and 15, for those who count the numbers. For this quartet, I thought we would actually go to the scherzo that you talked about, which is very interesting in its syncopations and its use of pauses. And I think it's fair to say there's quite a bit of humor in this scherzo. I think that's very fair. There's a lot of the loud note, uh, yum, bum, bum, and then it's immediately quiet long notes. Bum, bum, jump, bum. The rhythm is also offset in a way that is really shocking and surprising. Such a perfect expression of Beethoven wanting to shock. Of course, there's that story of him. Apparently, after a party, he was playing something very, very quietly for an audience on the piano, and everybody was completely transported with his performance. And at the end of it, he just smashed the <laughs> lid over the keys to just shock everybody. In early Beethoven, you can see him doing that, the subito fortes and the really shocking colors back and forth. So again, just him doing what he does best, even in a light situation, he's trying to have a light fun with still telling us who he is. And I think that's really special. All right, well, let's hear that then. So we'll play an excerpt. And I think we'll start with the repeat of the first section so that we can move on and hear some of how that's developed beyond the initial uh, statement. So here is an excerpt from the Scherzando Vivace, the third movement of Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 12 in E-flat major, opus 127, as performed by the Dover Quartet. Thank you. 
You just heard a portion of the third movement, the Scherzando Vivace of Beethoven's 12th string quartet, the E-flat major, Opus 127, considered the first of the late quartets of Beethoven from an album of all of the late quartets of Beethoven from a cycle of the complete Beethoven string quartets by the Dover Quartet on CD Records. And my guest on this podcast is Joel Link, the first violinist of the Dover Quartet. And then we're going to move on and start discussing some of the other quartets. Now, as you pointed out, Joel, the 12th Quartet is in the standard four-movement format, which is true of all 11 Beethoven quartets that preceded it. One thing that makes the next one, the number 13 in B-flat major, opus 130, immediately different is that it's in six movements. How radical an idea was that at the time? I think it had to be pretty darn radical. (laughs) He hadn't done that, certainly, and I feel like he was the one breaking traditions, and certainly a lot of the respected composers to that point had not done anything like that. So I think it was was huge. It's not even just the fact that there are six movements. While they're certainly connected in, in certain ways, I feel that each one of these movements is a complete world unto itself, especially with his original finale being what is now separated as Opus 133's Grossa Fugue. That coming after the Cavatina is a absolutely mind-blowing experience and the ultimate shutting the key lid on the piano for people. And no one could have expected something like that. Maybe not even from him. And what must have made it really radical for the original audiences is that it was originally with not the finale we typically hear it with now, but with this Grossa Fuga, which is a dense, often angry 15-minute fugue that would have made the whole quartet about three-quarters of an hour long. That's now, of course, typically played separately as the Opus 133 Grossa Fuga, but actually, does Dover occasionally play the piece with that as the finale? We have. I would say that I think our preference has generally been to play it with the Grossa Fugue. Oh, interesting. It generally has been that way live in concerts. What we often do to be able to provide the full experience to listeners is to always plan to play the last movement that he wound up composing as an encore. So then you get a a choice to be able to hear it. And in some ways, it's really hard to know because, of course, the way that it happened was that Beethoven went to his publisher bringing the original Opus 130 with the Grossa Fugue as the finale, and his publisher basically told him, you really can't do this. They're not going to go for this. And very contrary to Beethoven normally, who was so sure of himself and didn't really care what anyone had to say, even Beethoven himself realized that his publisher had a point. So he composed this other movement, which sadly I've gotten to calling it the alternate (laughs) finale. But I will say that as a piece, the piece makes a tremendous amount of sense with the last movement that he wound up composing. And in some ways, it ties the piece better together as a classical piece of music. Realize that that could be considered a hot take, and uh, (laughs) I'm happy to defend it. I would say that I generally prefer to perform it with the Grossa Fugue just because of that stark contrast and the huge delayed gratification at the end of this entire piece, which I feel is a tremendous experience. And uh, I still remember my very first performance and experience with Opus 130 was at the Marlboro Festival. I will never forget the feeling I had on stage was one of almost feeling completely possessed on stage by the time the Grossa Fugue came and this incredible amount of energy and there's always a difference of your favorite ones in your head and your favorite ones to perform. When people ask me what's my favorite Beethoven to perform, 130 is my answer. And there's something very special about the arc of the piece, even though it is so incredibly not standard. I can't really think of a piece of music that's more uplifted and 
inspired and really special, not maybe the most groundbreaking in a lot of ways, but there's something about the piece that really has always spoken to me. Interesting. And of course, the finale he ended up writing at his publisher, Artaria's recommendation, is much more cheerful <laughs> than the Grosse Fugue. Yeah. I can't underplay how great that movement is. I adore playing that movement. It is very difficult, but it is a great movement. And it's an encore. It's quite a hefty one because it is a 10-minute movement. It is. I will say sometimes we've cut out a repeat <laughs> or so as an encore. It, it's quite large. The quartet is in six movements, and it's got some delightful stuff, including the charming Danza Tedesca German Dance fourth movement. Besides this finale, or sometimes the Grossa Fuga, it's perhaps most cherished for the sublime Adagio Molto Espressivo, which he titled Cavatina. What makes that movement so touching? It's a, it's a good question. It's, again, not one that I feel that I can fully touch on. I can say for me, what strikes me about the Cavatina is when you look at the slow movements that Beethoven had been writing up to this point, especially as we're experiencing some of the ones in the late by the time we get to the middle quartets, he's exploring these huge, standalone, deeply emotional movements that are quite large. And I feel what speaks to me about the Cavatina is its extreme simplicity, but depth at the same time. It's, it's that simplicity and lack of complication that allows you to just exist in this space. What's also really incredibly special about the Cavatina is, as with anything that we're speaking about here, he was completely deaf while writing it, but he also... While writing the Cavatina, it's said that he cried on the manuscript because mm. he knew that it was so beautiful. It's hard to know why he was crying. Was it purely emotional or was he sad that he can't hear it performed just in that live situation? That's incredible. There's a section in there called the Beklempt. That's maybe one of the most touching parts of any piece of any time. It's a real privilege to get to play it. Every time it feels difficult to be able to capture the full gamut of what you know that he was most probably going for. So there's a tremendous amount of responsibility in performance, and we've always been really excited by the challenge. For us, it's something that we love to express. All right, well, let's hear some of that then. We'll hear about the first half of the Cavatina right now, and this is again performed by the Dover Quartet, the Cavatina from the String Quartet in B-flat major, opus 130 of Beethoven.
You just heard a portion about the first half of the Cavatina movement from Beethoven's 13th string quartet, the B-flat major opus 130, from a new collection of the late string quartets of Beethoven performed by the Dover Quartet on Sadie Records as the third and final volume of their complete Beethoven cycle on CD. Those first two works we just heard, the quartets 12 and 13, make up disc one of this three-disc set, which is the longest disc in the set as well. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, you can, of course, get the album on cdrecords.org, our website, c-e-d-i-l-l-e records.org, or if you like to buy the physical CD from Amazon.com or Archive Music, it'll be there. If you prefer to stream, the album actually becomes available on October 14, which means any pre-orders would ship then, and that's when it will actually appear on streaming sites such as Apple Music and Tidal and Spotify and the rest. And I should note, the next piece we're going to hear, the beginning of disc two, is the Grossa Fuga that we've been talking about as the original finale of Opus 130. And of course, it's in the same key of B-flat major. And if you're listening on a streaming site, it will play straight through from the end of quartet number 13, straight into as the next movement, the Grossa Fuga. And you can even play with the order if you want to hear it when you're streaming or even listening on CD. You can go straight from the Cavatina to the Grossa Fuga, if you want, and hear it played that way as well. Now, this really is a remarkable piece. It's interesting that it was such a challenge for the quartets of its time, but now it's considered perhaps even a showpiece for string quartets, as Nancy November suggests in her notes. Do you play it separately as well as, as part of the 13th Quartet? You know, we have. I would say generally it's been for programmatic purpose. For example, next season we're pairing it with Schnitke's number three string quartet, which regularly quotes the Grosse Fugue. So it has that purpose. But I do feel while one can certainly play it alone, it is 100% a standalone piece. I feel like the best version of it is when it comes in context because of the way that it resolves at the end. And of course, that experience, while in the Grossa Fugue, it's nearly 15 minutes. It is a huge experience. It's even better for me when it's a 45, 50-minute experience, depending on, of course, the speed of the performance. Is it fair to say that this is, I hate to use the word iconic, but I'm trying to find a, a better word to fit this piece in terms of just how much it is respected, even appropriated. I'm thinking of Bernstein in West Side Story uses it in the cool yeah. field of the Jets. Well, it's yeah. all those half steps. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. actually a direct quote. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I don't really know. I try not to sit and think about that side of, of it. There's no doubt that this piece is extremely influential and there's so many reasons as to why. And even today, many of our mentors and people in quartets that I've respected for years and years still feel that after years of performing it, they're not really truly sure that they even understand it. And that's huh. not to say that they don't know what's up. Again, it's like if you're really listening to the harmony, it's there, but it, there are so many passing tones and neighbor things and things that distract from the harmony that it, it can easily feel quite a bit like a big mess. <laughs> it's not really even in the level of performance. It's so scattered and so thickly written, and our approach has always been that the piece, it's done the most justice when everyone just goes for it to try to voice it and have it be clean in this. I don't think it was really probably what he wanted. I think he wanted it to be shocking and for it to just be a chaotic thing for the first three, four minutes of the piece. And then, again, so typical of him, it's the opposite, where he's been going so crazy for so long, and then it comes to maybe the most peaceful thing he wrote in the entire piece for a very long period of time. And 
he's just searching for those boundaries again. You know, he doesn't mark a lot of different tempi. It's more that there's several sections in the piece. There's the active part, which is tends to be the fugal stuff, and then there's the slower, more heartfelt, sweet stuff. And at the end, nearly at the end, when it was crazy in the beginning and then this incredibly beautiful slow section comes, and then he comes in again, breaking things down for us, and then it reaches a climactic point several times, but there's a huge climax, maybe about three, four minutes from the end when we break through to this very expressive, slow, triumphant version of what has been this not very terse, angry statement until this point, and it becomes just so joyful and exuberant. It's amazing that he can take a, I don't even think I can call it a melody, that he can take these half-step intervals, hocketing back and forth and turn it into something so incredibly beautiful just by his unbelievable use of harmony. He did that better than anybody else. Just taking something that you can't even imagine it, maybe even being so beautiful, and he turns it into this, honestly, life-changing experience. Well, you mentioned the part where he breaks everything down in the middle. I thought that would be fun part for people to hear. Uh, this starts with a forceful statement of the fugue subject uh, in the cello about halfway into the piece. Anything you may want to say about this? It's interesting because it takes a step back from the opening that's just completely chaotic. He breaks things down for us. We get a sense that it, he's not crazy. Look, these are actually all the elements that are here, and you can hear how I'm using them. So I feel that's something that almost clarifies the opening part of the Grosse Fugue. All right, well, let's hear that then. Again, this is about midway into the fugue. And yes, you're right, you really do hear the subject very clearly and well laid out at this point. So here is a few minutes of the Grosse Fugue of uh, Beethoven as performed by the Dover Quartet.
You just heard a couple of minutes of Beethoven's famous Grosse Fuga, the B-flat major single movement work that was once attached to his Opus 130 Quartet and is still often played that way as well. Performance was by the Dover Quartet, and again, the Dover Quartet is Joel Link and Brian Lee violins, Milena Paro van der Stadt viola, and Camden Shaw cello. And in this set of the late string quartets of Beethoven, we come to the quartet number 14 in C-sharp minor, the Opus 131. Now, while the late quartets are certainly celebrated as a set, I think it's fair to say that this one is particularly revered. It's said to have been Beethoven's favorite. Schubert had it played for him on his deathbed. And I think it is often acknowledged as the quote-unquote greatest string quartet ever written. What makes this piece such a monument, Joel? Oh, it's a good question. To add to your Schubert thing, apparently when it was played from on his deathbed, he said, after hearing this, what left is there to write? Mm. So I think you're totally right. It is extremely revered by someone, the level at which Schubert was writing at that point, and to be able to say something like that is pretty darn meaningful. Yeah, Schubert wrote some pretty good string quartets himself. <laughs> yeah, and not to mention at that point, he was probably finishing up his cello quintet because he was writing a lot of that and apparently dictating a lot of that from his deathbed. Again, what draws 131 to be this incredible experience, it helps that Beethoven gave it a certain stamp from himself. For me, this is the one that's the toughest on the listener, while also extremely gratifying. I feel like he is exploring the deepest boundaries in this one and expanding what a string quartet can do in terms of how easy it is to play. It's it's so difficult, of course. It's different than a lot of the ones he'd written to this point or different than any of them. This is it's essentially a standalone 40-minute piece. All the movements are connected. So in a live performance, it's better in a recording because, of course, you can tune bef- uh, <laughs> between takes. But I can tell you that at the end of a performance on a hot summer day, it's tough to make it sound great at the end because the strings and everything are, are falling. And there are just a lot of difficulties built into the piece, but it also makes the experience unique. And I think we often like to say that the fugue sets the stage for like a flashback story throughout someone's entire life. And the way that it connects and the middle movement being the fourth movement of the seven, everything's around that movement. And that movement is another huge theme and variations movement where I feel like even that movement alone, it goes through an entire life of its own. So in a way, it's a meta experience, if you will, something that you feel like you're experiencing so many different events at one time at different paces. It's incredible. It's so difficult. I was just going to mention that the structure of this is even more radical than the previous quartet. Now we have seven movements, and as you point out, played without a break. One shudders to think what quartets of the day without modernized instruments would have sounded like by the seventh movement. And like the twelfth quartet, it has that massive variations movement. That single movement is almost as long as the Grosse Fugue itself. And as you point out, truly the heart of the piece, not just because it comes in the middle. And I thought that is the one... Uh, we would key on. It goes through mm-hmm. many tempo changes, by the way. If you were to list all the tempos, it would go Andante Manontropo e Molto Cantabile, Piumoso, Andante Moderato e Lusinghiero, Adagio, Allegretto, Adagio Manontropo e Semplice, and finally Allegretto. How do you describe a movement like this? I don't know. I really don't know. And each variation has such a distinct character and style. The one thing that loops them all together is a very singing, expressive quality. It has a very slow dance at some point, and it also has a jazzy, offbeat one. It has so many different things. 
it's Beethoven exploring his creativity and honestly flexing his chops. And even while finding a jazzy character in some, it's not devoid of extreme depth and emotional content as he delivered throughout his entire lifetime. So it would be weird if he didn't manage to do it in a movement like this. But again, even in this variation movement, it starts with a certain character. And again, he goes through the whole experience and then at the end brings us back in a way to a triumphant version of exactly what that was in the beginning. So it's little mini structures within a giant structure and then also breaking the structure at the same time. It's absolutely genius. Okay, well, let's hear some of that then. So we'll hear a few minutes of this amazing variations movement, the fourth movement of the string quartet uh, number 14 in C-sharp minor, opus 131 of Beethoven. We'll start a couple minutes in so you can just hear a little variety. And again, this is performed by the Dover Quartet. Thank you. 
You just heard a portion of the middle movement, the movement number four out of seven of Beethoven's renowned C-sharp minor string quartet, Opus 131, the number 14 in the catalog, as performed by the Dover Quartet from their new album of the complete late quartets of Beethoven, part of their full Beethoven cycle. And that's actually the piece that ends disc two of this three-disc set. I'm talking to Joel Link, the first violinist of the Dover Quartet. And Joel, before we move on to disc three, I thought this might be a good time to talk about the recording process. What were the sessions in Goshen, Indiana like, and how was it different working with producer Alan Bice alone? Maybe you can mention the dedication of volume two to the engineer who worked on the first two volumes. We've been working with Alan Bice, obviously, through the entire process of the Beethovens, and that's always been amazing. We've always enjoyed working with him. Bruce Egger was the engineer for the first volume and part of the second volume. From our experience, of course, not really knowing him aside from working in the sessions, he was a very soft-spoken and very quietly kind person and just a really wonderful presence to have in the room. It definitely felt a huge loss when he was not around while, of course, nothing against Alan and he's wonderful, but his quiet calm, I think, was really, really helpful during a recording session. For lack of a better word, it just felt empty when he wasn't there. Yeah, we were just really big fans of his work and energy. To dedicate volume two to Bruce, and my understanding is Alan did all he could on volume three to match the way Bruce had recorded the first two volumes. Right. No, that's absolutely true. In terms of the recording process, it's grueling, if I'm being really honest. While the music is incredible, I think it's it's always hard to go into a studio and record something like Beethoven because obviously the tradition is huge. And you know that you're, I hate to say it, but judged on recordings like these because they're the center and the core of what we do as a classical, on the more conservative side, maybe ensemble in terms of programming. Certainly I felt, and I know that we all felt a huge sense of responsibility going into the sessions in terms of feeling very strongly about what we were doing and making sure that things were coming across in a way that we were really excited about and definitely learned a lot through the process. I feel that it was a life-changing experience, and especially for us, added part of that was that we did a lot of it through the pandemic, which meant that we were able to move the sessions a little bit quicker because we obviously didn't have as many concerts to play, and that also had its really nice points as well. But of course, to be able to just sit and record them just takes a lot of time to flesh out what you want to do with the pieces, and hard because recording is just a snapshot in time for where you are at that moment. I definitely know that we tried our very best. And did having such a nice acoustical space as the Souder Concert Hall at the Goshen College of Music in Goshen, Indiana help? I think so. It's always really inspiring to play in a great space. The recording process is fraught with its own issues of not having an audience and them drawing that X factor out of you that you have in a concert. And trying to bring that out of yourself with every take is quite a lot. But the space certainly helps. So it's almost like you get feedback from the hall itself? In a way, it inspires the sound that comes out of your instrument, and when it combines with the hall, that magic, it opens your mind up to the possibilities of what you can achieve. You can't achieve certain sounds in certain spaces. We like to say that the space is like the fifth member of the quartet in certain ways. You can't really separate your sound and performance from the space. So that was helpful of knowing how to approach playing in in that kind of space. It is a really great one. 
Now we come to the quartet number 15 in A minor, the opus 132, and as with the previous quartet, the heart of this one comes right in the middle of its five movements in this case, so it's the third movement, and it's the famous Heilige Dankesang, or as the entire title of the movement goes, and it's marked Molto Adagio, Heilige Dankesang eines Genessenen an die Gottheit in der Liedischen Tonart, which translates to Holy Thanksgiving to God from a recovered person in the Lydian mode. <laughs> I just love that at the end. And of course, this obviously has to do with Beethoven recovering from an illness and using this movement, which is, I think, the longest movement in any of these late quartets. In your performance, it's 17 minutes long, which is even longer than the Grossa Fuga, of course. What can you say about this movement and indeed the A minor quartet as a whole? Ooh. A lot to say. I feel that the, the Heiliger Dankesang is in some ways the most holy and pure thing that he wrote. For me, when I think of zooming out and experiencing the movement, I think you have to with this. Otherwise, it, it feels so timeless, which is something I think really special about it. It can feel like you lose the sense of where the movement is going because it has these several statements in the beginning that are, again, it's not really about the melody. It's more about the harmony, in my opinion, while it does essentially have a melody. It's maybe among the most transportive of his movements as well. It it 100% takes you to a very, very different place. So you can tell that he had been really struggling and was so thankful to still be alive. And I think that's the inspiration for how he wound up writing something like this. It starts in a very slow, holy character, and it is broken into this. It's written mit neue Kraft, which means with new life, new energy. And he has these dance sections in the middle, but they're not extremely lively. They're very elegant and stately, at least I think in our effort to perform them as such. And then it comes back to a slightly more decorated version with more suspensions and that of what we've heard at the opening. And then again, we have this lively section come back. And then at the end, it's the most ornamented, but also in some ways the simplest. Yeah, I adore this movement. It's so fulfilling to get to perform, but also you have to just be taken by the spirit of the movement. If you're trying to control it, it's not going to be a very fun experience. More just to talk about how powerful his music is. The quartet as a whole, I think it's it's hard to say if this one's darker than 131. I think it certainly ends more uplifted, but there's a, a very and a misterioso uh, agitado feeling in the first movement that feels very brooding. And the second movement, again, he has this light dance with this, again, pure trio that comes out, as with all of these pieces, very fiendishly difficult for intonation and for phrasing and such. And I think it's really easy to overdo or underdo, so it, it really becomes a huge matter of your personal musical taste. Uh, obviously, we were just speaking about the Heiliger Dankesang. The fourth movement is a pretty short, sounds like a court dance to me, elegant and sung with this very passionate, almost like an aria feeling with this very operatic and vocal finish to the fourth movement. It's a very short movement, and then it sets the character for this, again, I would say cyclical feeling in that the fifth movement has a, a very similar character to the first movement. It's a little more breathless than the first movement. The first movement may have a bit more legato and singing in it than the last movement, which feels a bit more crazed, but flips the switch as he always 
does the climax at the end of the last movement is this huge, extremely difficult, very high up cello melody, but then it, the melody from the opening of the fifth movement is set in its loudest, most climactic form, and then the clouds part, and then there's just this incredible stuff that comes in major. Again, uh, very transportive, transcendental. I would say that this is another one of the quartets that many people consider to be their favorite. Actually, a, a considerable amount of people have a very special spot for this one, and I can see why. It's an amazing piece. Getting back to the middle movement, it does bounce back and forth between the Molto Adagio Dankazang and the Andante Naya Kraft Fuhland. And I thought we could hear the first statement of that Andante, the very as stately dance, as you put it. So here is that section of the amazing Heilige Dankazang movement of Beethoven's String Quartet in A minor, Opus 132, the number 15, as performed by the Dover Quartet. You just heard a portion of the famous Heilige Dankesang third movement of Beethoven's A minor string quartet, Opus 132, from the late quartets of Beethoven, a three-disc set that makes the final third volume of the Dover Quartet's complete Beethoven cycle. And you can find this album when it's released on October 14th on streaming services like Spotify and Tidal and Apple Music, or you can order it, or depending on when you're hearing this podcast, pre-order it from the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or from Amazon, of course, or Archive Music, wherever you like to get your music, you will be able to find this 
culmination of an amazing Beethoven quartet cycle, and we now come to the last quartet, in fact, the last major work of any kind Beethoven completed, and one that wasn't even premiered until after his death. Now, after the monumental quartets that preceded it, the number 16 in F major, opus 135, you could say seems almost lightweight by comparison. It's barely over half the length of the previous quartet. What does it say that Beethoven chose to end with a conventional four-movement quartet full of simple charm? Your guess is as good as mine. I I don't really know. And personally, I kind of wonder what he was thinking. And I adore the piece. I think that for me, the slow movement is the jewel of this quartet. It is a theme and variation that's not so long, uh, certainly by comparison to what we've experienced in Opus 127. But again, there's no lacking of depth here. And in some ways, it's the most heartbreaking in certain ways, echo some of the stuff I was saying about the Cavatina. I feel like this one has a bit more simplicity in it. The first movement, if you didn't really know much better, you could know that this was a very classical work like you already mentioned. What's really different about it is we're seeing him, the statement is passed around probably about five or six times between different voices of people. That's difficult to do very well as a string quartet because while all the instruments blend really, really nicely together as they're all string instruments, all the timbres are different and to have it feel like one cohesive idea is always challenging. So I feel like he's doing that, passing things around, and you really see that at the opening of the second movement, which the accompaniment is created by the three people who do not have the melody all playing different beats of the three-beat bar. And it creates this really amazing effect. Each part left to its own makes zero sense. But when you put them Mm -hmm. all together, it's like these pieces of a puzzle really fitting together. So for me, that's the theme of this piece is just the level of passing around and everything kind of being disjunct, like how people who really love Picasso feel about it. It's everything's separate, but you get the sense of this composite, which is really, really special. We were already talking about the third movement and just how meaningful that one is. The way that it goes into the final fourth movement which has such an austere beginning at the very famous question. The one moment of angst in this piece is that opening, which he titles Der schwer gefasste Anschluss, the difficult decision. Now, some people think that this was actually written in jest and that the must it be, it must be, was actually about a dispute over Beethoven's commission <laughs> amount. Yeah, I've even heard that it was about a gambling debt. So (laughs) yeah, I think it's really hard. Of course, everything he'd written to this point, the hugeness of what he had really achieved and what Beethoven means for humanity. People love to feel like this is a must it be that I'm going to die because it was so close to the end of his life. But from, I think, all historical knowledge, I don't think it was meant to be the life-altering question that we've, in a certain romantic light, we've wanted to superimpose. He was dealing with very normal things towards the end of his life, and this was an extension of that. And also given how short the opening of the fourth movement is in that austere character, it doesn't feel like he's really wanting us to stay there for too long. And of course, the theme it moves on to is quite cheerful and syncopated, maybe even reminds me a little of the scherzo of the first of the late quartets, the 12th, and even a little bit, although it's not as fast, reminds me a little bit of the rage over a lost penny. So it's hard to see this as life. Right. You know, must I die now? So you mentioned those dark opening chords and that they lead to this allegro that's just full of joie de vivre. What does that say, considering the condition Beethoven was in at the time, that he would end on a movement like this? 
I think he probably had a really good sense of humor. <laughs> That's kind of what I take away from it. Is I, I think he felt a lot of stuff. Obviously, with what he was creating, he could feel a tremendous amount of emotion and convey it even more importantly. But here, he wants it to be light. And maybe he's looking back to his past or being young again and wanting to be infused with that energy. He has some funny moments, even in this, as you say, a more lively joie de vivre situation here. I don't feel like he was ever devoid of having humorous moments, you know, maybe not in his slow, deeply meaningful stuff, but he's always setting people up for surprise. Well, let's hear some of that then. And we'll hear from right from the beginning so you can hear both sides of this finale. So this is the final movement of the final string quartet, the F major opus 135 of Beethoven, as performed by the Dover Quartet. You just heard the beginning of the last movement of the last Beethoven Quartet, the F major opus 135, number 16 in the catalog, as performed by the Dover Quartet from their album of all the late quartets of Beethoven, a three-disc set that is the culmination of their three-volume cycle of the complete string quartets of Beethoven. And Joel, now that we've gone through all these, what would you want listeners to take away both from this late quartet set and from your cycle as a whole? 
Ooh, I would hope that everyone is enjoying it and feeling as much through the music as I know that we feel when we get to play it and perform it and how much the music means to us. I would also say I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure often with listening to classical music that you understand what you're listening to. And I think it's great to educate yourself and listen and have thoughts and feelings about it. Ultimately, what I love about playing music is it speaks to you the way it speaks to you. I can offer my thoughts as to what this music means, but ultimately, it's really just about what you're experiencing. And I don't think that there's really a wrong way to experience the music. So I think just be very open to the experience and feel what you feel and share what you feel and tell people that classical music can be really deeply moving and say something very intimate and special. Well, that's lovely. And I think it certainly helps the listening experience that it's so well engineered in taking advantage of the really remarkable acoustics of that hall in Goshen, Indiana. If you ever nearby there, check it out sometime. Uh, is there anything you want to say about the Dover Quartet's overall approach? Is it fair to say that your tempi are perhaps brisker or on the brisk side compared to the way some quartets have approached this music? I think that's fair to say. I would say that we're not really a group that for the most part really sits and is very finicky about listening to what everyone else is doing and trying to fit in. We just try and find the clues that we have, and it's quite famous that Beethoven was wildly in love with the metronome mm -hmm. when it came out during his lifetime, and he went back and ascribed tempo markings to all of the early and middle quartets, but not the late ones. So I think the late ones are left for a lot more imagination and interpretive license, if you will. The earlier ones, a lot of people think Beethoven's metronome was broken because all the, the tempi are really fast. And that's certainly a theory, and, it's, and one could explore that. But what's interesting to note is that there are particular movements where his markings are incredibly slow, one of them being the slow movement of Opus 18.6. It's actually a quite slow tempo compared to many of the other ones that he lists, and, there, and there's some other ones as well that are on the slower side. Our approach has always been to try and listen to those markings, the metronome markings that he provides, and to have it be an insight into what he most probably wanted in his head. Because, of course, at the time that he would have ascribed these tempo markings, he would have been deaf. And in thinking about Tempe myself, I know I certainly get the sense that when I'm hearing something in my head, I always hear it faster than one can really play it. And, of course... Beethoven is very famous for the remark of, you know, what do I care about your instrument limitations when the muse speaks to me? For him, it was ultimately about what the music should be, and it had a life of its own. And in a way, he was almost hostage to what came out of him. And in certain ways, he didn't have control. It's like the muse is telling him what it needs to be, and he's just the messenger. That was our approach, uh, mostly. I think we got pretty close to some of the markings sometimes, but I don't think we killed ourselves over making sure it had to be exactly what he wrote because we also wanted it to sound right. That was really our general feeling as far as that, but I do think that as a result, they're a little bit on the brisker side, especially, I would say, in the earlies and middles. I feel like maybe the late's a little less so. Interesting. A lot of people credit the rapid development of the piano during this period to basically catching up to what Beethoven was writing for instruments that really couldn't play it. Right. Well, I think this has been a wonderful discussion of the quartets. Uh, what's coming up for the ensemble? I understand there may be a first personnel change since Dover was founded in 2008. Yeah, um, that's certainly true. We're sad to lose Milena, but we're also obviously incredibly excited for her moving forward in the future and, and pursuing a lot of the things that she would like to pursue individually and 
of course, we're very grateful for everything she's brought. She's an incredible person and musician, and we're excited about her future and excited about ours, which will be different and exciting. We have some really cool projects coming up that we're excited about. We just premiered a commission by Stephen Mackey. It's a piece called Memoir. It's a theatrical and a musical work that we perform right now with a percussion duo called the Arcs Duo, Garrett Arnie and Mari Yoshinaga. That's been really fun. There's an, also an actor and a narrator involved in the project, actor-narrator named Natalie Rakes, and she's been incredible throughout the process, and it's been wonderful. It's entertaining. It's fun. Uh, many people cry. It has levity, depth, and all of that stuff, and I'd say it's enjoyable for basically all ages. And it's a memoir based on Steve Mackey's mother. She wrote it really beautifully about her life experience as a first-generation American charting her own path in search for the American dream. So we're really excited about that. That's been cool. We're going to Europe a couple times this year for some really cool tours in October and I believe April, May, around that time. You know, concerts in Hawaii in November, some exciting collaborations coming up, particularly with Joe Conyers, who's a really wonderful double bassist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. So we're excited about that. And of course, we're continuing our residencies at Northwestern University and the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., Amelia Island Chamber Music Festival in Amelia Island, Florida, and Artosphere Festival, which is in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And can't forget, you know, we're always teaching at Curtis, and that's our newest addition to what we do. And that's been fun. We're getting to a place in our lives where we're of course, still performing a tremendous amount, but enjoying a, a transition into being able to be more on the mentor side of chamber music and string quartet playing, and that's been incredibly fulfilling to do that. So we've enjoyed getting to work at Curtis and enjoying doing more of it. And is your performance schedule basically back to pre-pandemic uh, levels? In general, yes. With the Curtis residency being something that we acquired over the pandemic, that has certainly slowed things down because it's a full-time residency and we want to be a big part of the community and a big part of the school. So there's a certain amount of that that has slowed down, but that's been more out of choice than pandemic-induced, which hmm. is good and something that we're happy about. But we still love performing and we still want to be out playing in, in a lot of beautiful places and traveling. And just so I understand, are you trying out different violists this season? Yeah. Honestly, we're still in a place. We've been reading with people for a bit. And we're most probably going to be in a place where we're going to appoint someone for a temporary amount of time while we continue our search. Any rough idea of when that announcement might come? Uh, probably sooner rather than later. <laughs> so, <laughs> As you yeah. know, we are recording this podcast at the end of July for an album that will be released in mid-October. <laughs> And, of course, uh, speaking of residencies, you have the one here that brings you to Chicago, what, about three weeks in the year? Yeah, twice a quarter for three days each time. So, yeah, six, uh, like 18, 20 days a year. So when are you next in Chicago? I think we're going to be back around October 4th. Oh, right before the album is released. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's exciting. We always ask at the end of these podcasts about perspectives on Chicago, and of course, you and your quartet have a particularly interesting perspective with uh, ties to four major American cities, including Philadelphia, New York, and D.C. So from that vantage point, what makes Chicago different and special? Well, uh, that's a good question. I think for me, I actually spent some of my early high school years in Chicago. So I lived in Skokie for a period of time. So for me, I have a particular fond spot for the Chicago area. But what I think kind of sets it apart as a very different feeling place is that 
not everything in Chicago that's incredible only happens downtown. And I feel like Chicago is so spread out in certain ways that you can really be in a lot of the Chicagoland area and experience some really amazing music at the highest level. It's fun because Chicago has so many different organizations and so many different venues that it feels like every time you go to Chicago, you're experiencing something a little bit different. The support from the community is really special. The people that are really into classical music in Chicago are are pretty rabid and in a very good way. It's always fun to be in a place where you feel like that support is so strong. That's a great point, Joel. My guest on this Classical Chicago podcast has been Joel Link of the Dover Quartet. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records. Thank you for listening.